and me and dine me when I was your girl. Promised if I'd be your wife, you'd show me the world. But all I've seen of this old world is a bed and a doctor bill. I'm tearing down your brooder house, cause now I've got the pill. All these years I've stayed Hello in and welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this episode, I will be digging right back into The Group by Mary McCarthy. Uh, the Group was published by McCarthy in 1962. It was later turned into a film in 1966, a film I have not seen yet, but apparently according to some of the reviews I've seen, it more or less follows the, the plot of the book and the characters of the book fairly well. And maybe sometime in the future I will take a look at it. Uh, in the last episode, I looked at the first five chapters of the group, the first hundred or so pages of this novel, the first third of it, and I really raved about this novel. And I hold with that. I mean, it, the, this book doesn't get worse. It, it only, um, you know, it's, it's good throughout. And, and I think it's really her best work. It's her most overtly political work that we've come across yet. It's just such a great, great, great dissection and a great just demonstration of what second wave feminism was about. It, and it looks really at through the lives of, of eight women, eight or nine women. Eight are in the group. The titular group are, are eight Vassar graduates from 1933, all entering into careers, into family, into, into fully realized sexual lives. And they all do it in different ways, based on their personalities, their background, their, their economic situation. And through the course of the novel, we, we learn more about these women and their post-graduation experiences, and a little bit on their interactions. It's a little bit, you know, I guess if there's any criticism one can make of this book, it's that these, the, it, it does seem like these could have been standalone short stories that get crammed together. It, it's, it's, it's got a bit of the like the Arabian Nights kind of structure where you have an, an overarching plot, which is actually that they graduate and they attend a, a wedding for one of their members in the beginning. At the end of the novel, they attend a funeral for the same character. And then in between, it's just short stories that are somewhat interconnected and woven together. And they're woven together quite nicely, but there's not an overall plot that involves all of them. They're all kind of doing their own, their own thing, like uh, different character arcs in a, in a sitcom or something. Uh, although it, it's not a particularly humorous book, it deals with some very, very serious issues. It's just some of the issues we talked about in the last episode include things like um, women's access to birth control, domestic abuse, um, physicians in their relationship with women's uh, sexual health and, and you know, things like birth control, uh, careers. Those are just some of the issues that come up right away in, in the novel. You know, what does sexual freedom mean when your marital choices are still bound by your social standing or your what you need or, or your economic necessity or things like that? Um, yeah, the, the first five chapters are really, really great. Now, the focus of those chapters was the character, uh, the characters of Kay and Dottie. Uh, Kay is the, it's a, it doesn't really have a leader, but there's the, the character that her, her marriage kind of initiates the action of the novel. That's Kay, and her funeral is what ends the, the novel at the end. Um, that she, you know, her marriage, and then very, even though her husband seems to be a fairly good guy, we find out not too long after the novel begins that, she's, that he's having an affair with at least one woman, Noreen, who's also a Vassar graduate and a, a kind of acquaintance of the group, but not part of the group itself. And we learn that about them. We also learn that he's a bit emotionally abusive, and, and it's clear later on that he's also physically abusive to, to Kay. Now, Dottie, her main plot involves falling in love with uh, a young man uh, on that, that she met at that wedding. She loses her virginity to him. He basically sets up an, a, a long-term affair he's going to have with her encouraging her to get birth control and then a lot of her story revolves around access to birth control and getting birth control and the different types of birth control that that were available to women and the you know the question of whose burden it is to seek out birth control and there's a very very interesting discussion go back to the previous episode for more on that but a very very interesting discussion in the the, the politics of 
the class politics of birth control because it, it seems it's almost like a bourgeois thing. It's a middle class thing to have women go to the doctor and prepare their own birth control while working class men tended to just buy, the way, the way it's put, you know, Trojans by the dozen or something. So a lot of interesting politics with, with that. So this is how the novel kind of is going to play out is we have that introduction, but then Mary McCarthy spends a couple of chapters. Sometimes it's just one, sometimes it's a couple, and they're interwoven a little bit. But we, we spent a couple of chapters with most of these women seeing the major issues they're dealing with after their graduation from Vassar. Again, they're all professional women. They all have career interests, although some are better more capable of pursuing those those interests freely than others, you know, sometimes really due to economic reasons or or family burdens or or whatever. So in the previous episode I also give you an introduction to all these women. I'm not gonna go through that again. I'm just going to talk about chapters six through ten to kind of bring us up to towards the climax of the novel, which is quite tragic um, and, and, and quite dramatic. It's, it's all quite well done. Um, so chapter six, I'm just going to jump right into it. And again, if you are just joining us, I do urge you to listen to my previous episode where I, I give my overall feelings about this, this wonderful novel and, and talk about those early chapters. Now chapter six picks up sort of where the last chapter, chapter leaves off with uh, one member of the group, Helena, finding out, basically observing that, that Harold, Kay's husband, the, the, the married couple from the very first chapter of the book, uh, who we're presented to is seen as initially as kind of a good guy, open-minded. He actually talks with Dottie quite openly about birth control and things like that. He seems to be fairly a progressive person, but it turns out he's abusive to Kay. And we find out in chapter five that he's certainly having an affair with, with Doreen. This was observed by, by Helena. Now, Helena doesn't go out and seek out Kay about that. Instead, she seeks out Noreen and begins to talk to her about that. And so chapter six is mostly, in large part, a, a conversation between Helena and Noreen about affairs, about marital marriages and the right of women to engage in, in to, to have access to sexual pleasure. And there's some really, really important issues in this chapter about medical care and impotence and and just the, like, should resources be spent? Is it a wise use of, of medical dollars to, to treat things like impotence? We take it for granted now. We got the, the little pills that, that have helped millions of men um, out with, with impotence, a common enough problem. But back in the 60s and before that, this novel's of course set in the 30s, you know, when you reach that certain age where things didn't work quite as well as before, that was just part of aging, right? It was like, you, you say goodbye to that part of your life. And, and fortunately, we're not in that world anymore. And that, that's due to a lot to the achievements of the sexual revolution, right? Um, but some of that is, and then, you know, it's not just the man, right? It's the, the man's wife who's, who's losing out because of that, those decisions. Or those, um, the, the skittishness of, of doctors about talking about and dealing with impotence, right? My understanding is really the masters. The masters played a major, major role in, and I think they wrote the book. Um, uh, what's his name? Mass. Oh, I forget who was the first name of that guy. But he he wrote the the big book on this, which was I think it was called On Sexual Disability or On Sexual Dysfunction, uh, sometime in the '60s, which was a groundbreaking breaking work in the study of impotence and the treatment of it. This theme comes up a lot in in chapter six. It's really the focus of it. Um, so basically, the, the center is this one of the members of the group, Helena, seeks out um, Noreen to talk with her just about this affair she's having with Harold. Um, basically, and then it ends up, as you would expect, then a, a, question, a, a conversation about adultery and its ethics, its, its practical aspects and things like that. Now, Helena, kind of, she's the one of these characters in this group that doesn't get married. And she's, you know, some don't get married right away, but they all end up with husbands of some sort by the end of the novel, except Helena, right? So Helena, I guess, represents, I don't want to say totally asexual, but, but the, the choice of women who are, for whatever reason, more indifferent to sexuality or indifferent to, to married, married life. Um, she does come off here as a little bit uh, not fully understanding this drive of characters like Noreen to, to seek out sexual pleasure. She, she seems it's kind of a, a little bit of a, a waste of time or a 
And that, that's why she's having this conversation with her. Is she's just really a, a meeting of minds who come from very different attitudes about this thing. Um, you know, but she, again, she's not going to tell Kay. She's not letting the cat out of the bag. She's just, you know, she's engaging in this dialogue with a woman with a very, very different point of view about sex. And that's what makes this great. I talked a lot in the last episode about the sexual revolution and the politics of of kind of the confessional and how the sexual revolution was in many ways a confessional revolution. People being more honest about what they have done. It's not that they were necessarily doing new things. It was just the environment of such in the 60s and 70s was more open to people having a conversation about what they did. Uh, I think one thing Mary McCarthy exposes here, since this novel is set in the mid-1930s, is that, you know, these conversations were taking place, but privately, right? And they weren't really public. There are things said in this conversation between Noreen and Helena, which would have been, would not have been proper to say in, in public, in, in a broader discourse, um, in the public eye, certainly not during the years of the Great Depression. So, um, actually, Noreen's a fairly interesting character, and this is our first real window into Noreen's life and her, her attitude. And just her worldview. Um, she's almost part of the group. I, I kind of think of her, her as kind of a ninth member of, of, of the group. Like some of the other members of the group, she's interested in philosophy. She's, she's on the left. She's, she's fairly political. And that's another um, difference she has with Helena. Helena, actually, the group's kind of split, I think, to, between people who are more artistic and more interested in art and more interested in in kind of the sensual life, I want to say. Sometimes it's through art. Sometimes it's just through kind of uh, grandiose living. I think Pokey's kind of in that that realm. Um, rich. I mean, Pokey's rich, overweight. She's, uh, you know, kind of the party girl. Always out there, social animal, like a social butterfly. Um, Helena is more the artist, right? And she goes to teach art at an experimental school. But Noreen is closer to like Libby or or um, Polly, especially Polly, who, who really are socialists or, or into New Deal politics or into philosophy and, and just more political, right? So anyways, Noreen is married to this man, Putt, Putnam. Putnam Blake is his name, or she often just calls him Putt. And he he's impotent. That's the thing. And that's her explanation about why she's seeking out affairs. Right. So there's a couple of things here. One is the, the impotence issue and how that sh- could be addressed and how it wasn't being addressed by by medicine. And the second is like in given impotence, does the burden of monogamy fall through on that? I mean, are you still bound to be sexually monogamous with with a husband who is is not providing you your sexual needs? And Noreen since clearly not. I mean, she, clearly she has that right to pursue that and she's going to do it however she wants. I mean, she does it in a way that's, of course, betraying Kay and, and sabotaging her, her marriage. But I get the sense Noreen's attitude for this is sort of, well, if Harold's going to do it, he might as well do it with me and because you know, he's, he's going to do it with someone. She does become much more villainous, though, towards the end of the novel because she does actually be more active in sabotaging Harold's marriage, actually going so far as to help get Kay committed towards the end of the novel. So that's uh, she's the closest maybe we have to a villain in this novel, which really doesn't need one. It's it, it, it works without that, but it's her and Harold kind of work together to, to be the doom of, of Kay, unfortunately. So she actually goes into the story about how, you know, once she found out Putt is impotent, she actually started to research it. And it's a uh, we see her candor in this dialogue, which I like. This is on page 123 of the Library of America version. She said, uh, she, she's talking about a librarian, drew me up a reading list on impotence, a lot of it in German. Quite a bibliography. There are different types, organic and functional. Putt is functional. He got a mother tie. His mother is a widow. Some men are incapable of erection altogether, and some are incapable except in circumstances. Putt's capable of full erection, but only with whores and fallen women. She gave her short laugh. But you didn't find all that out at the library, objected Helena. She had heard her mother declare that it was possible to get a university education in our great public library system, but there was a limit to everything. No, said Noreen. Only the overall picture. After I read up on the subject, Putt and I were able to talk. He'd had all his early sex experiences with whores and factory girls in Pittsfield, it turned out. 
They pulled up their skirts in an alley or a doorway and he'd ejaculate sometimes at the first contact before he got his penis all the way in. He never made love to a good woman and never seen a woman naked. I'm a good woman and that's why he can't make it with me. He feels he's fornicating with his mother. That's what the Freudians think. The behaviorists would claim that it was a conditional reflex. But of course, he couldn't know any of that ahead of time. It's been an awful blow to him. I excite him, but I can't satisfy him. His penis just wilts at the approach to intercourse. Lately, I've been bunking in the living room because he has a horror of contact with a woman's crotch in his sleep. Though we both wore pajamas, he had insomnia. Now at least I can sleep bra. Now, then the conversation turns to Noreen and says, well, why don't you just go to the doctor? And here's her reply. Have you ever tried a doctor? Noreen laughed darkly. Two, Putt wouldn't go. So I went. The first one asked me whether I wanted to have children. He was an old-fashioned neurologist that my mother knew about. When I said, no, I didn't, he practically booted me out of his office. He, didn't, he told me I should consider myself lucky that my husband didn't want intercourse. The second one was a GP, general practitioner, with a few more modern ideas. Putt's partner, Bill Nuckham, sent it to me. He was pretty much a behavioralist. When I explained Putt's sexual history, he advised me to buy some black chevron underwear, a long black silk stocking, and put on cheap perfume so that Putt would associate me with a whore. End quote. So those are the two advice. Now, no one's looking at the, you know, really talking about treating Putt's psychological or physical problems. The, the impression here is it's psychological and I, I don't know if there's any good reason to believe that or if Mary McCarthy was trying to you know I don't we could take her word for it that Putt's problem here is is psychological um, but of course many people have fairly physical physiological treatable issues with with uh, either case though the, the it's not about treating Putt no one brings that up really uh, the one says it's your woman's burden right that's a common theme in this book is like the woman's additional burdens that are put on her through life by different forces, family, job, children, um, the culture, whatever it might be, right? Uh, birth control, seeking out birth control, whatever. And so the first says it's her burden, and basically she has to change who she is in bed, you know, try to spice things up. And the other is completely useless, just saying, right, I'm not going to treat impotence, you know, and women don't like sex, so... You're, you're lucky you don't have to deal with that like some women do, you know. And unless you want to have a kid, there's no reason to have sex. That's essentially the, the point. So I, I think that's a very, this is a quite important chapter on this issue of, 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 the, of the sexual politics surrounding impotence and treatment of it and, and how women dealt with this in their, their husbands. It might be a similar conversation about closeted homosexuals who were married, which was not an uncommon thing at that time before the gay liberation movement. Although that's not addressed in this novel, you know, maybe there's a, in the subtext, maybe, maybe Pun has a bit of that. I don't know. Uh, it's kind of preposterous the explanation we're given here of, of why he, he can't have an erection that he can only get get out of get up for for back alley whores, but. Anyways, a really, really interesting chapter. And I, I think, like all the chapters in this book, dealing with important feminist issues, talking bluntly and openly about what women were facing socially, institutionally, and culturally beyond just... Because these are all women, again, who got a college degree, who, who can vote. You know, they, they're benefits from the first generation of feminism, but their, you know, their lives are still constrained and, and challenged in many ways by things that have nothing to do with their political and, and legal rights, but have everything to do with what's expected of them, like the, soci the, socialize the socialization of, of gender. So I really like chapter six, and I, I like this. I'm interested in this Noreen character and her politics and, and those kinds of things, even though I think Helena is a bit of a bore of a character, frankly. Um, but I, I think it's important that she's there because of all eight of the gang, of the group, married and, and followed that path, I think Mary McCarthy wouldn't have been showing the diversity of opportunities. And I think one appeal of this novel is kind of like the, the, the Sex in the City kind of story, right? Where there's something there for, for every audience, right? That, that in a story like this, in a sprawling story, there, there's especially one that's dealing with women's real issues. There's something that's going to touch the, the lives of every woman. And certainly there are women like Helena who, who you know, had kind of turned their back on, on traditional marriage for whatever reason and, and didn't find as much interesting in, in the sexual lives of some of her sisters. 
So yeah, I, 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 I think this is a worthwhile chapter, even though I'm not as personally interested in Helena, but I think there might be many readers who, who, who are interested in, in, in Helena's point of view. So anyways, chapter seven. Chapter seven, we, we get our best... I think this is the only chapter that deals pretty much exclusively or with with Pokey. And it's not even all about Pokey. It, it shifts kind of points of view halfway through. But And even the stuff that deals with Pokey deals mostly with um, a man named Hatton, who is the, the Prothero's butler. But again, Pokey um, is the, the rich girl in the gang. And... And this is our window into her life after after college. So Pokey, Mary, Mary Prothero, that's her name. She says she's a daughter of privilege. And Mary McCarthy doesn't actually have that much to say about her. Uh, the vast majority of this chapter is dealing with um, Hatton and, and, he, and he's just a really fascinating character, I have to say, um, this butler. So he's like the archetypical, I think he is English. He's, he's kind of the English um, butler. And of course, there's all kinds of interesting class politics worked into this desire to serve. In fact, he's, he's a bit, um, even within the servants, he feels he's better than like the restaurant workers. He sees the restaurant workers as kind of in the service industry and therefore somewhat comrades, but he doesn't want to... to um, he still thinks like private services is, is better, right? Now this is all in the of course in the time of the Great Depression when having any job is, is is a good thing for many people, but it also is a time when uh, you know there's more criticism of the the life of the rich and uh, this grotesque use of, of of wealth among the the ruling class at a time when people couldn't get a job and were in you know in, in food lines and all that. Uh, and of course, one one element of this is that these elite servants become actually what part of the family, and that's what Mr. Prothero says about about Hatton. You know, like one of the family, kind of an institution. Hatton is famous, like one of the family. That's the the description of of how they see Hatton's place in it. Um, Hatton himself becomes a butler, kind of out of a feeling of the need to serve. Uh, quote, the fact was Hatton had become a butler because his father had been in service, but he too had come to feel that there was something more to it than this. Like Miss Mary said, he had a vocation or a higher call that bade him assume the office. This conviction has only overtaken him in America where genuine English butlers did not grow on trees. You're the real article, Hatton, a gentleman who had come to stay at Long the Long Island House had said to him one morning with an air of surprise. He was like a stage butler or a butler you saw in the films, a gentleman doubtless meant to imply, end quote. You know, when I read that, I kind of had the impression, I, I thought of Sartre's waiter almost, right? If you remember read Sartre's Being in Nothingness, he has that, it might be the most famous passage in that huge thick book, but it's the, the waiter who's kind of like going out of his way to be the waiter, right? And this is kind of given as an example of in, in, in authentic life where you're living as other people see you, living through as your social role, rather than as a free and authentic person. And, and Hatton seems to fit that, that role. He's, he's a bit deluded in his class consciousness, right? He spends a lot of his time reading newspapers, especially the newspaper of the elite. He reads the newspapers to his, his masters, of course, reading what they want to see, showing interest in what they want, uh, delivering news to them, what they would want to hear. He's very much always conscious of their needs. And, and his needs are always suppressed, if he has any, right? He, he's able to live fully in this role as the servant, which I, I think is kind of fascinatingly presented here. And um, it makes him a, a, one of the more interesting characters in this novel, actually, even though this is a novel about women and women's struggles. This is, a, you know, one of the important male characters in this, in this novel. Um, so the plot-wise, what happens here is he's reading in the newspaper about this strike. And this is the one little window we get into him kind of expressing an interest in something that's his own, his own private interest. And it's like a strike he's reading about. And he's reading about the strike among food service workers. Of course, the mid-30s were this time of intensive labor action. It's the rise of the CIO, a huge expansion in, in representation by labor unions and unions won some of their biggest gains during the Great Depression because of this massive 
uh, unionization effort. But anyways, the real news that he ends up presenting to his, his master's employers is that Harold was put in jail for the strike or for participating in the strike. And the response by this, by the Protheros, is really fascinating. Now, we actually don't see Harold in the strike or his relationship so directly in the, in the plot. It's kind of just told through this newspaper account. But he got arrested for participating in the strike. And um, Dottie's, or no, Pokey's mother is kind of horrified that, that it's Harold, someone they had over for dinner, would would be with these communists and rabble rousers. So you know, again, I think the the elite class was in a very very fragile point in the mid '30s, right? Whether you had strong communist movements, you had strong, uh, like the movement against the rich was very very strong. You had Huey Long. You have um, even on the right, you have people like Father Coughlin who are blaming the sins of America on the on the rich, on the on the one percent. And Roosevelt comes in. You know, as with this New Deal, which saved capitalism, right? And the capitalist class in America was a lot to Roosevelt for essentially saving capitalism um, from the pitchforks, right? And her response to this, you know, an uprising of servants that gets Harold arrested is how, you know, how offensive it is that this jailbird, now a jailbird, you know, sat and had dinner with him at one point. And that's basically what we hear in chapter seven from from about Hatton and, and Pokey's family, the Prothero family. The second part of the chapter shifts attention to Dottie. Dottie, who has begun having this affair with um, what was his name again? Dick. Let me make sure I get it right. Um, yeah, Dick Brown. The, you know, on Kay's wedding night, she loses her virginity and she has this affair and she seeks out the birth control and all that. But she's facing a bit of a crisis of her own because Dick's a little bit more aloof than she would like. She's fallen in love with him, right? And she ends up having lunch with her mom basically to plan her wedding to this guy named Brooke. And this has been in the works for, for a while. And this is like the one she's supposed to marry. And again, we find, I mean, really in Dottie's character, not only is the birth control issue centered place, but also this freedom to choose who you want to marry. And the pressure between what's expected of you, your class background, your family background, you know, and on the other side, the, you know, desire and, and love. And she clearly loves Dick Brown and that's who she wants to be with. It's kind of, it's actually represented by this kit of birth control stuff that she carries around with her. It seems to be almost a representation of her love for, for Dick Brown because he's the one who told her to, to do that, to, to arrange that. So she's having dinner with her mom or lunch with her mom. And her mom, interestingly, is sympathetic to her love for, for Dick Brown. She confesses she loves him and doesn't love, doesn't seem to love Brooke or doesn't have the same feelings for Brooke. And the mother is fairly open-minded. And I think that's, uh, um, you know, her character is not as odious as many other parents are in this book or as much of a burden on her. But at the end of the day, Dottie's not really, doesn't really have the opportunity to pursue Dick. Partially because Dick checks out. He, he, he's just way too aloof for her. And she has to pressure to marry. And that leads her to the easy path, the, the logical path almost. And that is, that is Brooke. Now, we actually get some of, of Dottie's mother, Mrs. Renford's point of view, uh, stream of consciousness at the end of this chapter, which shows her as actually fairly sympathetic to her daughter's wishes, but also on some level, knowing that this Dick Brown is not the right choice for her. Quote, Miss Renfield considered the accusation. It was true she had to confess that she did not want Dottie to live with Dick, but she would want Dottie to want to do it. Yet how to express this? Perhaps Dottie was right, and she was only being conventional and wishing to postpone the marriage. It might be the conventional Bostonian in her that felt that Dottie ought to make some gesture towards the past. Yet, was this enough to account for the deep, sad sense of disappointment? Than she had disappointment in Dottie. It seemed to her, looking at it charitably as she could, that Dottie was being tempted by Brooke's wealth and by the glorious outdoor life he had to offer her, of which she had painted such a vivid, unforgettable picture the desert and the silver mines and the pack trips in the mountains. You were just talking to yourself, Dottie, she chided, when you said you loved Dick. I was only going by what you told me. I don't believe you do love him, but I think you like to say so, because if you didn't want to, you'd be too shunned, you'd be shamed and degraded. Um, so there's complexity here in, 
in her impression of her desire, it seems that Dottie really does love Dick and and Brooke is the, the easy marriage, the one that's going to lift her standing, the one that's going to bring in money, the rich, good guy. Um, but, you know, the mother somehow doesn't quite understand her attraction for, for, for Dick, thinking that's more of a, a game or a playful thing. So there's some really interesting contrast between the two. And yeah, as appealing or as sympathetic as Mrs. Renford is, she doesn't really understand her daughter's desires and what she wants out of life. And and that's a big issue when you know we think about the, the type of marriages that, that these characters pick. So many of them choose. We don't feel many of these marriages, but to be frank, I, I don't feel almost any of these uh, in this book. I, I feel some of the relationships between men and women, like the Dottie, Dick Brown one, I, I you sort of feel maybe it's because it's early in the story and it's it's contrasted with with Harold early on, but you know a lot of these marriages just seem to be there, right? This is again a novel about the women and the men in their lives are just there, floating around. So, anyways, that's a, it's this chapter is is one of the more divided chapters in that it's it, it, it focuses mostly on Hatton and then focuses on Dottie. Um, and and I think the one character maybe we don't hear that much about is 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 Mary Prothero. I I don't have the um, yeah she she gets a little bit short shrift and you'd expect some of these characters not to get all the attention because it is a lot of characters packed into a fairly short short novel but it is what it is um, yeah so that's chapter seven um, chapter eight is about Libby now this one is a really really great chapter I think and it, it deals with a whole other issue something we hadn't that that's kind of coming up here and that is professional inequality and the prof pressures of being a professional um, woman the impression I seem to have here is in the editing industry the editing industry was dealing with the fact that in the Great Depression when there is tightness in the industry there at the same time that there's a lot of university women who got English degrees and had dreams of entering publishing and a lot of highly qualified and skilled editors and translators and 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 readers and people who could enter that but don't right uh, that aren't able to fit in or aren't able to get into a tight market and a male-dominated um, industry at one point is told that the only person who made only woman who made it high in publishing was was mrs knoff um, i don't know if that's true and certainly it's not true today but maybe at the time that 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 was true and then the, the point is even made that she only made it because her husband was a famous publisher um, but libby okay libby is is an English major who leaves and college and wants to get into publishing and gets into edit. She, her dream is basically to be an editor and to be to move up the chain in publishing. And she doesn't have a lot of luck in it. So this chapter is about her failure to secure the profession that she she dreams of and the sexist pressure she faces in this industry. Okay, well, her story is she ends up getting a job uh, with a publishing company run by this guy, Gus Leroy, who's a communist. He's a Stalinist. And we actually learn more about him when we get Polly's story, which is another one of these women, of course. But we're first introduced to him through the narrative of, of Libby. Um, her ambition is maybe idealistic, but I don't think it's unreasonable given her, her, her skills. Um, she, she's like she actually reminds me of a lot of maybe young workers today who you know do the unpaid internship and work really hard at it thinking that this is going to be their entryway into the industry that they love that they will really want to be a part of uh, but they get frustrated by just the saturation in the marketplace or other pressures of course her pressure is largely as a woman she's not being respected and treated equally now her skills what are her skills well she's an english major she uh, knows literature she knows books she's able to she works hard and she's fluent in in romance languages i think it's italian and french she's she's fluent in so she can read manuscripts in those in those languages um so um so she she actually also wants to move into writing uh after she gets into to publishing she has a very very active dating life too now this becomes important later on because she's almost raped uh, uh, in this chapter um, yeah, no, is it the next chapter? 
Yeah, it's in chapter nine. She's almost raped, and she's able to claim that claim her virginity as a way to get the. the, the so it's kind of like a date rapist, to to back off, which contrasts interestingly with with, with um, Dottie, who you know actively seeks out a man to take away her virginity, and 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 Libby, who's far from a, a virgin, quite active in dating life and her in her sexual life, but. You know, she ends up having to, to use her, 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 you know, use the claim of virginity as a guard against um, a rapist. Which, um, yeah, it's uh, yeah, some pretty scary stuff in this this book, to be sure. The the pressures these women faced are, um, again, like what I said in the last uh, episode. If if anyone doesn't buy the need for second wave feminism, if anyone who thinks second wave feminism is just um, Broad burning, you know, women who are going too far or something, you know, just read this book and you'll know that they were dealing with real, real issues. It, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't simply bourgeois excess. It wasn't just the politics of, of the ruling class, right? It, and there's a space for identity politics simply because there are special challenges faced by different groups, right? That's why the proper response to this isn't to just say, oh, all that matters is class politics. Right, and I think that over that's kind of hanging over this whole book. Actually, is the politics, the overt politics in this book are about socialism and about the struggle against capitalism and and the Great Depression, right? But Mary McCarthy is making the point is that there has to be a politicization of, of women's issues because they are distinct and they're they transcend class and and they have to be addressed. So we need to have solidarity with these issues to to. Um, to deal with them, right? It's part of the overall human liberation that socialists are for. And you can't just say, oh, all that matters is class issues, because that's not true. I mean, Mr. Leroy here is a horrendous sexist, but he seems to be, you know, a good socialist and a good Stalinist. Um, anyways, um, she works really, really hard at this job she ends up getting with the publisher. She gets $5 to review a book manuscript and to write a report on it. And she writes very detailed reports. She does a lot of her research. She, she reads them carefully. She spends a lot of time with each one, which doesn't let her do, do, doesn't let her do, do, do too many of these kind of freelance jobs. So she doesn't make that much money. She, she gets some kind of allowance, I think, still from her family that, that helps her to support her life. But she doesn't get that much money from this. She's, she's kind of like not much more than an unpaid intern in a lot of ways doing this. An exploited worker, if, if you want to think of, you know, Leroy's a, claims to be a socialist, but he's basically using Libby as a bit of a slave here and then throwing her out when he doesn't want her anymore. Um, anyways, very, very determined career woman. She wants to get into book reviewing. That's the first thing she sort of... Um, um, starts pushing her way to get into. She thinks if she gets into book reviewing, she can move her way up in the industry, get well known, get her name out there. Again, the kind of the delusions of the unpaid intern thinking, if I just work hard enough, I'll, I'll be recognized and I'll be rewarded down the road with uh, the plum job I've always wanted. So first, uh, Mr. Leroy fi just fires her, stops giving her jobs. Again, she's, she's, uh, she's freelancer, she has no job security. Um, but eventually he reaches out to her Actually, no, Harold gets involved. Harold gets involved at one point. You know, again, Harold's a complex figure. He's more or less odious, but he has his moments where he actually does try to help these women in the group and these people in the circle, like he does with Dottie. And he does here with Libby, too, trying to get her work translating because her skill is in, in, in foreign languages. But eventually, Mr. Leroy gives her a manuscript, um, a to, to review and it's a trap it's it's a trap basically to expose her as not having the ability or the muscle to to make it in a, in this industry now the book is in Italian so that's why he says you you're you're best suited to review this manuscript it's all in Italian she so she's optimistic about this and she thinks this is a chance for her to to prove herself in the publishing industry and she reads it and she's instantly horrified because it's mostly written in dialect. It's, it's like, um, if, like if you give Zora Neale Hurston, uh, her eyes were watching God, to an ESL, someone with very good TOEFL scores, someone a very good ESL student, but they're still not going to do well with uh, the, the African-American dialect in a novel like Their Eyes Were Watching God, right? 
you know, now we have audiobooks that help us out with that a lot. But even so, I've I've actually, you know, given ESL students here in China, you know, segments of like Charles Chestnut or Zora and Miller Hurston, even just listening to them and they don't know what's, they can't understand it, right? But native born Americans usually don't have any problem with African-American dialect because they hear it a lot and they, they're familiar with it, right? So it's, it's one of those things. And I don't know how different Sicilian is from Italian. It's probably a lot larger of a jump than just between um, like st standard English and African-American dialect of English, which, you know, it has special vocabulary, different spelling and, and kind of an accent, but it's still like discernible. She just can't really handle the dialect because that wasn't her training. Right. And it's very, very difficult for her to write a review. And she sort of gets it wrong. And not only that, it's other, you know, there's other reviews of this. It's all a trap. I mean, it, he, he didn't actually need the, her to review this book. Um, it's actually an old one, I think. It's an old book that he just gives to her as a, as a kind of a sneaky, um, just to kind of expose her, her weaknesses. Right. And which, of course, is a great way if you want to show someone is not fit for an industry, you give them a job that's completely outside of their skill range or an impossible task, right? And you say, ah, see, you can't do it, right? It's totally unfair. And Gus, pretty despicable character, actually. Um, but she writes this report. It's not that good. And he says to her, basically, publishing is a man's industry. It's not women's work. And you never had a chance in this industry. And I'm just I'm doing you almost a favor. Um, quote, Mrs. McAusland, I'm going to have to give it to you straight. I think you better look for some other kind of work. Have you ever thought about trying for a job with a literary agent or one of the women's magazines? you got real writing talent, believe me, and plenty of drive, but you're not cut off for straight publishing. I don't know how I can explain it to you. I've tried in my own mind to figure out exactly what's wrong. You just don't have the knack or maybe the common sense or the nose or whatever it is for picking out a publishable manuscript. Or let's say you're not hard-boiled enough. You're essentially a sympathizer. That's why I see you with a literary agent. You keep telling me you want to work with authors. Well, that's what agents do. Work hand in glove with them, especially on magazine stuff. Obviously, this is a huge disappointment to, to Libby. And it does sort of mark, it basically marks the end of her, her um, job in publishing. She does eventually get a job with a literary agent. She, she takes... Uh, um, Leroy's advice and gets that job and it suits her needs, but it's not her dream, right? And and again, I think the big story here is that she was entrapped. I mean, basically, Leroy wanted to make a point and he set it up so that point would be made. Um, basically, it gave her an, an unwinnable situation. So anyways, that's chapter eight. Basically, Libby's story, Libby McAuslin's story. Um, now, chapter eight, we enter into what's really a, a long segment. It covers about three, two or three chapters dealing with Polly Andrews. Now, Polly Andrews is, uh, of course, another member of the group. And I actually think her story is the most interesting of all of them. I, I really like the Dottie storyline. I think it's great and it's great politics. Polly's is the most interesting because it goes back into issues that Mary McCarthy was interested in, which is like the politics of the left and the society of leftist politics. Um, she's, I think she, she's the poor, she comes from the poorest family. It's a family that was really hurt by the Great Depression. And, um, you know, she just has the least opportunity to, to fully fulfill her, her dreams because of her, of her, of her background. Right. She lives in kind of a shabby apartment with a lot of working class radicals and socialists. Um, her main story here, though, in Chapter nine deal is, is in how it connects to Libby's is she has an affair with with Gus Leroy, who, who's married. Another really interesting aspect of Paul, of Libby, uh, sorry, no, Polly's story is is her relationship with psychoanalysis. She knows Freud. She's, she's like all these women, well-educated, graduate. Of, of college and and they have different intellectual interests but you know hers she does have this interest in leftist politics carpets through her family and her surroundings brings her into that but also psychoanalysis and gus is seeing a shrink um, largely because his wife wants to see and it's her father also has mental health issues that becomes an important plot um, later on in the story and we'll talk i have to talk about that in the next episode because that's in the, in the last third of the novel or so 
Um, so this chapter mostly deals with our introduction to Polly's life after, after college. Really shabby living conditions, um, surrounded by socialists, but, um, and, and having an affair with a married man. Um, now, towards the end of the chapter, we're reintroduced to Libby, and, and she meets a, a Norwegian kind of, basically like an like a aristocrat or something. I, uh, she meet, he's like um, an athlete and an aristocrat. And she, she meets him, and they have a date, and they get together basically through literary interests. They both have literary interests. And, they, and she, he basically tries to date Raper, this Norwegian, and that's the scene I referred to before, where Libby ends up using her virginity as a shield to avoid, you know, to avoid being violated by this this man. So when we look at Libby's story overall, she's really basically rather violently assaulted by two men, right? One of one an aristocrat, the other uh, a socialist. One professionally, and the other physically and, and sexually. So she, she ends up being fairly, a fairly tragic figure. Um, in the story. That's pretty much all we hear from Libby. You know, we're kind of reintroduced to all these characters towards the end of the story, but but that, that kind of mostly finishes up Libby's uh, um, tale. Um, chapter 10. So the last chapter I want to talk about in this episode and in, in this middle part of the novel focuses on Pris Crockett. Pris Cock Crockett we met Back in the first chapter, she's very interested in New Deal politics. She she gets a job in the NRA, and I think that was talked about in the very first chapter. Um, she's also the first to have a kid, and for her, her pressure, her her cross to bear in this novel, like all these women have a cross to bear of some type, sometimes several crosses. Her cross to bear is the baby, and the baby is making it very difficult for her to balance her professional life and her home life partially because her husband doesn't really help her that much. Um, and I think a lot of this chapter deals with the politics and the burden of breastfeeding. Now, I didn't know this at the time, that in the 30s, formula was much more popular than breastfeeding. I, I know it kind of, there's waves, right, of popularity for breastfeeding, right? And like right now, I think it's the, the thing to do in, in America, but like in Taiwan and China, it's not, it, you know, there's, you see baby formula being sold everywhere. So I think, you know, in different places at different times, the popularity of breastfeeding, you know, is, is high or low. You know, generally, my understanding is it's, it's, it's good for the baby, but, you know, women have to make their own choice based on their life, their health, their financial decisions, whatever it may be, right? And, and we should, as societies, be as accommodating as possible to that, that, you know, whatever decision that may be. Pris's problem is her husband thinks breastfeeding is better and basically orders her to breastfeed and she has all sorts of trouble with it. She goes to the doctor, she has um, to try to figure out what's wrong, why the baby won't suckle, you know, whether it's physical problems and the baby's crying all night, keeping her up. It's really, the kid's name is Steven. I'm sure deep down little Steven is a great kid and all, but from Pris's point of view, it's just a constant burden added to all the other burdens of her life, of her work, and her, her family. In fact, we don't actually see much of her work because there's so much. It's just the center of her life is Stephen. So anyways, with not, without going too much into the details of this chapter, uh, it's really about the social pressure of motherhood. I, I think that's what Mary McCarthy is trying to get across in this particular chapter, just the intense pressure that mothers feel to be a good mother and, and different attitudes of what that might mean. And I think that's still a true thing. And with every new fad, with every new you know, idea of what good parenting is, that often is just more pressure for women, whether it's, whether it's breastfeeding or cloth diapers or attachment parenting or, or a certain diet you know, or whatever, right? It's often, we gotta be cognizant of, of, of motherhood as, as a burden for women and an unfair burden often placed on women, not equally shared with, with men. Um, and, and it's, it's, it's not a fair burden always to just lay on top of it, uh, kind of a moral, uh, moralization about these choices. I think that's what I'm trying to say. And I think that's what Mary McCarthy is really trying to get at in this, this chapter. 
Towards the end of the chapter, Libby and Pris have a conversation about, about breastfeeding. And here's a little bit of it. I think this, this is something about breastfeeding in public, and Pris uh, doesn't want to do it. Um, why not? Pris hesitated. Or, why not? Pris hesitated. It's in poor taste, she stammered. I don't see that, said Libby. I don't see that at all. Her voice grew louder and louder. Is it in poor taste to talk about it? Why, it's the most natural thing in the world. In Italy, women do it in public, and no one thinks a thing about it. I'm not going to do it in public, Pris said. And if it's so natural, why are you so excited about putting it in a magazine? You think it's unnatural, that's why. And she hung up the phone. It was unnatural, she said to herself formally. Accidentally, she put her finger on the truth, like accidentally hitting a scab. She was doing the most natural thing in the world, suckling her young, and for some particular reason, it was completely unnatural, strained and false, like a post photograph. Everyone in the hospital knew this. Her mother knew it, her visitors knew it, and that was why they were talking about her nursing and pretending that it was exciting, when it was not, except as a thing to talk about. In reality, what she had been doing was horrid, and right now in the nursery, a baby's voice was rising to tell her so. The voice, in fact, that she had been refusing to listen to, though she had heard it for at least a week. It was making a natural request in this day and age. It was asking for a bottle. Uh, end quote. And, and I actually think that's a bit of a happy ending to her story in that the bottle is something that can save her and to get her beyond this moralism about the choices a woman makes in regards to how to, how to feed a baby. Something as basic as, as that. Um, anyways, a, a good chapter. I think a really useful one. It's, it's our closest look at Pris Crockett. We don't actually see that much more of her later in the novel. But I think this chapter really hits home the, the social pressures of motherhood. Um, all right, that's going to do it for this episode. Um, yeah, great chapter. It's a great book, really. I, I love this book. Now, of course, there's probably much I didn't talk about or skipped over or misinterpreted. So if you've read the group, if you've seen the movie, if you have your thoughts about this, Part of the book, the middle part of the book, let me know. Um, leave your comments below, leave a review, particularly on iTunes, that would really help me out. Or just send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. I will be back next time with my final thoughts about, about the group. We'll look at the final chapters of the group, chapters 11 through 15, and then my overall thoughts. Uh, I'm, you know, my opinion is not going to change. I finished the novel, so I can say this is a great one. This is one definitely to pick up. I think this is probably the one to pick up if you're going to read one of her her books. Her most famous, the one that's on the New York Times bestseller list, um, and deservedly, a really great and important novel um, dealing with second wave feminism. Even though it's set in the 30s, it's 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 really about uh, 1960s feminism. I think published the same year as the Feminine Mystique. So, anyways, that's going to be that. Um, anyways, thanks always for listening. Uh, really, let me know what you think. And I'll see you next time with my finale and final thoughts about the group. Yeah, I'm making it for all those years since I've got the pill. I'm tired of all your crowing, how you and your hens play. While holding a couple in my arms and others on the way. This chicken's done for a pernest and I'm ready.